You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Wayhai in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. This episode is brought to you by Hope is Alive. Hope is Alive exists to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. Join us on August 11th at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for a celebration of hope featuring guest speaker Tim Tebow and musical artist Ben Fuller. Find out more and get your tickets at HIA10.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hunt here, host, back with another episode. Today, we are down at the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Oklahoma Hall of Famer, inducted in 2016, Major General Rita Aragon of the uh, Air Force, U.S. Air Force. Which That's is, right. Oklahoma Air National Guard and moved into the United States Air Force. Yeah, yes. which is quite a big deal, right? Well, it was for me. Yeah. It, was a, it was a real stretch for my... Um, Plans. That's not what I had started out looking forward to, but it rescued me. It gave me a purpose for life, and I love it. Yeah, and and at the time, I'm sure was you know obviously the military is known for having structure and having a plan, and uh, I am someone who doesn't follow a plan never. So if I if someone brought structure into my life, it would be <laughs> much easier to wake up every morning and know what I have to do. I probably should do that myself, uh, but I can imagine it was really nice just to get into the military and and get your head down and you know. Basketball. It was. I, I had, uh, uh, I was a school teacher, uh, taught second grade, and Oklahoma City decided they were going on strike. And 
I couldn't make ends meet as it was. I was working at McDonald's on, when I wasn't in school, and I was uh, working as a church secretary. And so um, a friend of mine at church recommended that I get into the Air National Guard, and I was over 30 years old. So that was kind of a test, and he said, yeah, I don't know if you'll make it, you know, well, let's, give it, let's give it a try. So he got $100 for recruiting me, and he retired as a colonel, and I retired as a two-star, and every time I would see him, I would say, thank you very much for recruiting me. I really appreciate it. But so I joined in 1979 uh-huh. uh, because of the strike in September, and fortunately, Oklahoma City Schools, um, because of men being in the National Guard, had a waiver that said if you were doing military duty up to 30 days, school days a year, uh-huh. you could serve both and get, draw your pay for 30 days. Well, that was a big bonus. I didn't even know about that. So that was great. So, yeah, I joined at the age of 30 and went to uh I was an airman, basic, slick sleeve, no stripes, and went to San Antonio to go through Air Force basic training yeah. with a master's degree and two children. How was that going to San Antonio for basic training when you're around probably whippersnappers that are 18 uh, to 20 what, years old? Well, I'll tell you what I thought, because I had two little tiny girls, mm-hmm. one and two and a half, and I taught second graders. I thought, ah, oh, this will be delightful. I'll be with adults. I'll be, I'll be able to, you know just do my stuff and not have to worry about taking care and rubbing noses and taking potties and whatever. And I got in there and they were 18 and 19 year olds, most of them. There were a few older women, but none of them as old as me. And I got there and figured out real quickly, I liked the little kids better than the big kids because the big kids were crying, I want my mama. (laughs) And uh, and of course, that's the first thing they tell you, don't let the the text see you cry because then they will hone in on you and bear down on you and it's everything you've ever heard of a basic training being except that since I was the oldest person the very first night there they started me as the dorm chief I said I don't even know what that means what what, what do I have to do and it was specifically make sure everything gets done and make sure everybody is in place when they're supposed to be and I'm going like so I'm still lining kids up to go to, yeah, yeah that's right. You're, that's what you're doing. Your natural teacher. That's right. And, and it, it worked out real well. Normally they uh, rotate that odious uh, leadership position, and you had line uh, directors. And so we had four columns, and we had four uh, line directors every day, and I remained the the chief. And so it was really fun because that's what everybody called me. They didn't call me by my last name, which we called everybody else by their last name, but they just called me chief all the time. I didn't understand the significance of that in the Air Force until we started having to learn all the ranks and the symbols and all that thing, which is part of basic training. Um, And of course, chief is the highest Grade for an for an enlisted person in the in the United States Air Force, it it is also in the Navy. So, um, and having very little uh, Native American background education, I knew who the chief was. That's the guy who's the leader, and in this case, it was the gal who was the leader. Yeah, brilliant. So you said you know. Uh, the, the Oklahoma City Public Schools goes on strike, which kind of forces your hand and forces you to take this opportunity in, from a friend and go into the military. Where does where does education, where does the love of education come from? Do you grow up around teachers, or parents, teachers? No. Do you want to be in education growing up? No. 
Okay. I'm an ancient woman. And when you were my age, you had two careers you could go into. You could be a nurse or you could be a teacher. Okay. I didn't like blood, so I chose the teacher route. And um, found very quickly that there's not just a love for it. There's It it's, becomes a part of your heart and soul because you're shaping the lives of the people who are going to run the country, run the state, run your community uh, down the line. So yeah. that was a, that was a lot of fun for me. I'm sure that was, yeah. And, and did you stay with kind of younger age kids or did you go I, up in high school? I moved to fifth grade. Okay. And I'll tell you the reason why. Uh, I started off with fifth and sixth grade when I first started teaching. But mm-hmm. when I went into the military, I, w- I had gotten married, left, um, my husband was crushed by a motorcycle, so I had two little girls, and my only income was teachers. Uh, and so I uh, had had a break in service. When I came back, um, the lady who had taught at the same school I taught at, which was Culbertson Elementary, which no longer exists in Oklahoma City, um, offered to hire me at her school if I would teach second grade, and I went, Okay. And again, it was real small children. Your whole focus and the way you teach has to change. And that was a really good, even though I had a master's degree uh, in psychology and an elementary degree, uh, a baccalaureate degree in elementary education, it taught me loads working with, of course, those children were older than my children. So... But when I moved to the fifth grade, I loved it. The reason I did is because those are about uh, 11, 12-year-olds, and they have a great sense of humor, and I play on that a lot. I'd lot rather play on that than give orders and, and command people to do things. And children don't really respond to commands and orders very well. Yeah. And so I would always use Air Force principles when... When I got to the fifth grade and I would talk about, all right, let, I'm going to let you set up the rules for this off with this uh, class. What do you think we should you know, do? And you'd be amazed. They came right up with the things that I would have put on the board. But since they came up with them, they were much more inclined to go along with them. Yeah. And that's really my philosophy in leadership anyway. It's get the people that you're trying to do something buy-in by letting them say, we think this is the right thing to do and the right way to go. And it helps a whole lot. Instead of being the dictator uh, biatch, I become the woman who helped lead us where we want to go. Yeah, and you're right. At that age, you know, you're 11, 12, 13 years old, like... I remember when I was like at that age, you know, there's so much going on in your life. You also think you're invincible. You're made of rubber and magic. You know, you just, That's you, right. you can run the world kind of thing. Nothing's going to stop And I'm you. grown up. Leave me alone. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I can see why that was so powerful to say, hey, take ownership in this. And how do yeah. you guys think it works? And I'm sure you've seen that transpire through every single age range of your leadership career. That's exactly right. That yeah. is exactly right. Um, uh, there, Sun Tzu's theories of war, I studied in uh, Air War College, and one of the things that he said is, kill one and press a thousand. And so the first day of school, and I did this as a principal, I told my teachers, the first day of school, you set your guide on. Where are you going to be? What are your rules? How are you going to get? And don't, and and be staunch. Um, You know, if somebody breaks the line the first time, boom, you lower the boom. 
and you don't have to do it for the rest of the year. Everything is cool and clean and, and everybody behaves well. When I got my first command, that's exactly what I did. I had a gentleman who was not behaving well and I wrote him up and I wrote him up twice and I took him to my commander and said, I want to get rid of this guy. And they went, you can't fire a chief. And I went, oh, I think I can if I'm the commander. And they said, well, you'll have to go to the wing commander. So I went to the wing commander and he said, so tell me what steps you took. And of course I'd been a principal. So I said, you write it up, you write it up and you counsel every time and you talk to them. And he said, then fire him. And I did. Boy, the news traveled like, you know, shockwaves. Sherman, Sherman moving through Atlanta. Um, and, and I never had to do that again. Because when I would be moved to a new unit to take them over, the first thing they, they'd all start talking and say, who she's coming after? Who's she coming after? <laughs> and the truth was, I never was after anyone. I just wanted everyone to do their job and to behave. He was, this guy was, while he was a good worker, he, he sowed discontent and he talked really ugly about young ladies. And I told him, this is the new Air Force. You can't do that. Yeah. And we did that two or three times, and he was gone. <laughs> yeah. So how? What's the distance? What, how many year gap is it between you getting in? You know, getting in the military, still teaching part time, doing military part time, and then you going full military. Um, I didn't go full military until I was a lieutenant colonel. So that okay. was. Um, 15 years. Okay, so you did National Guard and teaching alongside I, that for 15 years. I was a years. principal and yeah. and uh, and doing the National Guard, yes. Okay. I was working two jobs. And at that time, I was working, working every summer, all summer long, on summer break. I would do Christmas break. I would do spring break. So I and, and I had those 30 days that were magical that if I needed to take a week off to go to school, which I did a lot, go to uh, military schools, um, I got I got double pay, so that was great. Um, I I went full time. Uh, I was a lieutenant colonel. That was as high as I was going to go. There was no opportunity for me to advance to colonel, and I knew it. And I was had my nose to the grindstone. I'm going to do this for five years, and everything will be great. And and uh, I got a call from a tall fighter pilot guy who happened to be the adjutant general of the state of Oklahoma. And he said, your wing commander tells me you're very trustworthy. I said, well, thank you. I hope so. Uh, I, I lead 400 children at a time. I think, I think I'm trustworthy. And he said, I need someone to come and run the air guard while I learn everything there is to know about the army guard, because the adjutant general is over army and air in Oklahoma. And I said, um, well, I can't really do that. I only have 22 years in education, and that won't be much of a retirement. And he said, it's the only way you'll make colonel. And he had a paper and pen there, and he said, and this is what an active duty colonel makes. And I went, I can do that job. It was twice what I made uh, being a, a principal. And um, I thought, I can always do this for because I had to hold it for five years to retire as a colonel. I thought, I can do that, and then I'll come back to being a principal again. There's plenty of use for principals out there in the world. I surely can find a job again. And so I did. I left uh, Oklahoma City Public Schools, went to work full-time for the Air National Guard, and became an active-duty AGR, Active Guard and Reserve, mm -hmm. for that position, which was to, it's called the Executive Support Officer, but what you do is, 
uh, keep a hand and an eye on both military installations in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, led to the other promotions. So yeah, no, it, no brainer. <laughs> it will, and but I had no idea. I thought it would be the one shot. Thank you very much. I'm excited to make Colonel. I am thrilled to death to have the opportunity to serve. Thank you very much. And yes, I will do it. Now it was very long days, and uh, the the adjutant general's time was consumed with the army. They were twice our size twice, maybe three times our size, and in numbers of people. And he knew Air, obviously, very well, because he had commanded the Tulsa wing and had also been a real two-star doing a job in PACAF, or Pacific Air Command, in in Hawaii. Tough job. Uh, But uh, somebody had to do it, you know, and might as well be him. And so he... I didn't get to see him normally until after 5 in the evening. So even though I came in at 6.30 in the morning, I was usually there till 7 or 8 at night. But my husband was a workaholic too, my new husband. And so that was real easy um, for us to get along. He, we, he worked late, so did I. So he was very patient with the situation, and I was very grateful. And my kids were grown by then. So I didn't have to get home and make dinner for six people. Thank God. Um, Life, life was much simpler then, even though I worked long hours and hard hours. Uh, but it was very good because just like when I was in the wing, I was moved to all three groups in the wing to command. So I learned all the details about their organizations and how they ran and what had to be done. And I tell people all the time, I'm not a military magician. I am not even a, a good historian. But... What I do know is people and money. And when you move into a new position, that's what you have to make sure you know. What are the people requirements for this? What are the money requirements for this? And if you tend to that, then everything is good. And one of my favorite stories to tell is about going to the fighter unit in Tulsa as the new commander. That's after I got my first star, commander of the Oklahoma Air National Guard. And I put on my flight suit because I had been a commander in operations because I was in the back end with Air Medical Evacuation Squadron, uh, another one of my lives. And um, I put on the flight suit, went in and took my best fighter pilot stance, hand on hips. The hip bone is where you, I don't know why they think that's important because they don't use that. But anyway, um, and I said, so tell me, do you want me to tell you as the commander of the Oklahoma Air Guard how to fly those little lawn darts out there? All the air in the room sucked out. And, and I went, let me tell you what. Why don't you take care of the flying mission? Make sure we get no mishaps. Make sure we get no write-ups. Make sure no one puts a plane in the ground. And I'll take care of your people and your money. And you could just go, they all just kind of wilted and went, oh, okay, all right. So you're going to get us more money. I said, that's my job. That's my job. And so from there on, we got along just dandy. (laughs) And it was not hard in Oklahoma City because I'd been in the wing forever and they all knew me. And they were all a little scared of me. And a little fear is good. And that's what, you know, the Bible says, a little fear of God yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right, because you've always got that in the back of your mind, like, that's I, right. I have consequence for all my actions. And, and that is a big part of leadership, I think, is know what the picture looks like outside your realm. Know who the big players are and what the big 
problems are. We talk about the rocks, what the big rocks are that you have to be able to move and get ready to do the mission. And fortunately, that was people and money in every situation I went into. If you know how to arrange people and get people and get people to leave, um, hopefully on good terms, then you can make all kinds of accomplishments and move forward. So that's how I got my first R. Yeah, that's amazing. So one thing I've read in your bio is kind of just, you know, obviously the patriotism and, and you know, you're basically on America's team, right, when you're in the military. Absolutely. And, and my granddad was a military policeman in the UK, and he tells stories about the first time he saw an American, and he always says that their uniform was immaculate, they looked incredible. My question to you is, you know, when, when you take this opportunity to go to San Antonio, you're doing basic training, you're probably putting that uniform on for the first time. Do you feel it then, or does it come later when oh, you're just no, like... It's, it's it immediate. Okay. As soon, well, basic training goes like this. The first two weeks, they, you're too stupid to know how to fold your underwear. <laughs> the second two weeks, okay, we've accomplished that task, yeah. and you've started learning the history of the military and ranks and insignias. and Okay, so maybe maybe you can stay in our service. Mm-hmm. The last two weeks, you can leap tall buildings in a single bound. You are America's greatest fighting force. You will, take o- you will prevent any other force from taking over America. You will be on the front lines, even though for a very long time you or not. Uh, but it's a great mind experience. And having been a, having my master's degree in psychology, I could identify with it. It wasn't a threatening experience, mm-hmm. but it certainly was a spirit building okay. and a very patriotic experience going through basic training. And yes, uh, I was stationed in Milden Hall, England for mm-hmm. a brief period of time and, and loved it and loved the folks there. But it is kind of a different mindset. And I will tell you, it's a very different mind. Well, it really isn't all that different from training small children. You're still training the minds of people who have to be converted, and it works out very well. The, the same tactics, I think, apply. Yeah, 100%. What was that like in the UK for a short time that you were? Oh, it was excellent. Yeah? It was excellent. Uh, I was at Milden Hall, which is where they had the the uh, Blackbirds station, the American Blackbirds, because mm-hmm. it was a super secret mission at that time. And uh, I got to go out and meet the pilots and the crews, and that was great. I was a major then? Major, probably. Yeah. And, and yeah, so it was very exciting. I loved it. Um, I can't say an awful lot about the food. <laughs> food open. The only thing we do well in the UK is Indian food. <laughs> takeout, Indian takeout is about as good I, as we can I don't, I don't know that I had Indian takeout yeah. while I was there, but I did yeah. eat in the Air Force mess hall. Yeah, so which is I, terrible, I'm sure. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, no. they, they tried to do the take on American food, so it, it was all right. Uh, but, but I did learn to drink beer there. I had yeah. never drank beer. And that warm beer, yeah, Yeah. warm beer at that. I won't say what the Americans call it, but yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah, Um, but it the people were fantastic. And while you guys are always about the stiff upper lip, Mm -hmm. uh, great buds, great, great guys that you deal with, and and extremely dependable. I loved it, I had a great time there. Yeah, so you're in the Air Force, you're you know, you're you're kind of National Guard, and then you go, you know, full time. Um, what were you like? like you know, you're, you're, you're mostly on the ground, right? You said you did charge of right. budgets and doing other stuff. But 
you know, I'm sure you were in planes every now and then. Oh. Do you love flying? Frequently. I do love flying. Okay. I'm, I'm a single-engine rated pilot, okay. which means nothing to the Air Force, except that I could have probably... No, I was too old to go as a pilot. But, um, yeah, no, I love flying. I still love flying. Uh, I still try to uh, trace the route that the that the plane is going wherever we're going. I'm doing it in my head, sing song. It doesn't, yeah. it may not be accurate, but I'm in my mind it's good. Uh, yeah, no, I still love flying. Yeah. Um, and, and of course the Air Force's mission is all about flying. That's what we do. We fly and fight. And, uh, and we hopefully take good care of our people. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a lot of fun. And I was a backender because I was in air medical evacuation, so I had to get qualified, which you have to deal with the pressure of the aircraft and all that kind of thing. And it was it was very exciting. Yeah. I loved being a backender. All of my careers, though, all of my specialties fell into about two-year time periods, mm-hmm. two-year chunks uh, after I became a commander. And, and so my job was always to go in and get the unit up for inspection and be ready and you know testing teachers we understand that so you're going to have this big test and it was my job to get all the money and the people right so that everyone was trained up and ready for the inspection and and we we always passed with flying colors yeah what would you prefer helicopters over planes or planes over helicopters Ooh, fixed wing always airplanes yeah yeah <laughs> i I've, I've flown in 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 a rotary wing several times uh, in different I didn't ever have a mission where we were flying. And, and they're great fun because you're flying low and slow and you can see what's going on on the ground. But there is nothing like the sound of an afterburner kicking in and the jets. They're, they're, they yeah. warm my heart even today. I went out to the Tinker uh, mm-hmm. uh, air show and uh, the concussion that comes off when those things take off and the vibration. And it's yeah. just, you know, you sit there and go like, I'm part of that. I'm part of that. Do you ever get an opportunity to go in the jets? or Because uh, Blue Angels are Navy, right? That's correct. U.S. Navy. So yeah. Did, no, but we have, we have the... But you we have, have the... the um, what is the Air Force version? What is the Air Force version? Uh, duh, we've hit a, we've hit a roadblock. Um, the I red, white, picture, and blue. I can, yeah, I picture the colors. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, I haven't flown in those, but, I did, but they fly F-16s, mm-hmm. which I had had the opportunity to fly in the back seat of one time. Thunderbirds. There we Thunderbirds, go. Thunderbirds, there yeah. you go. Well, that wasn't hard. Yeah. Why did I not know that? Um, anyway, and so, yes, I flew in the back seat of an F-16 out of the Tulsa unit, okay. and it was the pilot's duty to try to make me vomit and so in, in your flight suit there's a side pocket up here and they put a little plastic bag and he kept saying don't fly in my plane don't fly don't don't puke in my plane yeah. don't make a mess you know I'm going like and he's sitting right in front of me I said oh don't worry if I throw up it's coming your way um, and I made it through the flight okay although I will say we did barrel rolls we did yeah. whirls we did loop-de-loops we did all that stuff and the part that really got to me was the pull of nine G's. Mm. When you pull nine G's, you feel like everything is falling at your bottom. And so we got back on the ground, and I made it okay. And he said, all right, I'll give you some credit. You made it. And about that time, bleh, everything came up. <laughs> well, he said, well, at least it wasn't in my plane. I said, no, it's on the ground. And... Uh, it was it was an amazing experience. I cannot imagine. And those guys jump out of the plane, and they go drink beer, and, and you know... Uh, and mess around and and they do it but they do it all the time and they're very and and the guys that I knew that flew those things were consummate professionals with taking care of the aircraft taking care of the people on the ground uh, flying and fighting their mission doing an amazing job with it Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's one of my life goals, bucket list, is to fly in a fighter jet at some oh, point. Oh, it, so, it is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I would love to do that. Um, I don't know if I'll get a media pass to jump in a Blue Angels. I don't care what it is. Some fighter jet Well, Thunderbirds will be, be here in a year or two, so... Uh, we should... We should you, talk. <laughs> I'd love to do that. Is there any Oklahomans that are on the team at the moment? Or any Oklahomans there actually involved? is. There okay. is an Oklahoman. I can't tell you the name right now, but yeah, there is an Oklahoman on on yeah. the uh, Thunderbirds right now. God, I need to get I need to get in the backseat of one of those. Uh, but you're right. Like it, they're just their bodies are acclimated to it. It's just the greatest. You know, I I, I was fortunate enough during uh, I went played a golf tournament down in Arizona in um, near. Air Force Base, Luke Air Force Base in Luke. Arizona. And a few of us got to sit in the flight simulators. So they put us there. There's two flight simulators there. They paired us up in a dogfight, you know, and they just basically pointed us at each other in the simulator and just said, have fun for 30 minutes. And, you know, you're sat in a full cockpit, right? Sure. Like, yes. Yeah. You've got all, you got all yeah. the handles. you got yeah. all the... And I got out, and because, you know, you're in a 360-degree dome, basically, and you're seeing everything in this video game, and I got out, and my neck hurt so much because <laughs> I was not used to looking around and using muscles. Yeah, you want to do that when you're... And, and, so and that is fun. the thing. We we don't give fighter pilots... Now, if anyone's watched Maverick, mm-hmm. they do get very realistic with that. Yeah. And the truth is... Um, I was from the big bird world. I was from from uh, C-130s, which yeah. I love and still do. The Hercules are the movers mm-hmm. of the of the Air Force. Um, but you have a a team perspective. You got a pilot, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, a navigator, and then the back end crew. Yeah. And so everyone is a team, which I was used to as a school teacher. Sure. Where you know I'm the leader, you follow. We're a team together, and. Uh, Fighter pilots are not that way. They're individuals. They are lone wolves. Hopefully, they have a wingman. But if they do, the wingman's got to worry about his life. So you you share wingman each. Um, and it's a whole different process of thinking. You're thinking about you. You're thinking about uh, 360 degrees. You're looking around. We were... having a good time flying, uh, spending time in the air. And I I got to fly back end lots of hours with C-130. And -hmm. those guys were amazing. And, of course, that mission is now gone from Oklahoma, which I hate, but we still have a great mission out with special uh, operations out at at Will Rogers Air Air Guard Base. Okay. What what does the special operations entail? Is that, like, special operations as in, um, like, Yes. Really, really black dark stuff that they get to do that nobody knows about until that's right. Maybe I can't, I can't tell you about. So it. we have one of those in Oklahoma. We do. Wow, I didn't know that. And um, we fly usually um, reconnaissance and intelligence sure. flights. Yeah, it's not a fighter plane. There's right. no, there's no uh, guns on it. So yeah, yeah. So you got to fly high and be spooky. Exciting stuff. It is it very is exciting. exciting. And I'm sure, like through you know through your career, there are so many moments like that that you're like, I'm in a room. That not many people are in the room about, and I'm with, but no one's going to hear about this until maybe ever. Like that's, it's quite a quite a unique position to be in. Well, it was very exciting for me because they built uh, three different positions for me okay. at the Pentagon, and I, I I'm going back to the Pentagon this week mm-hmm. uh, or this next week. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, here I am, little Oklahoma, nobody, nothing, and they built a job in the Guard for me to work. I was the commander of the Oklahoma Air Guard, which is only a part-time job. That's why when I was a, an active duty person, I was the full-time hand, but I was only a colonel. Yeah. I always had a general that was over me, but they're just part-time. 
And so that was a part-time job. So the director of the Air National Guard built this job, and he said, I want you to come because you know people and money, and we need you to go to this work as an assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force for financial management and get money for all the Air Guard. Remind them that we're doing missions. we got to have man days. we got to have people. we got to have money. And so I did, and uh, got along well with the active duty forces there and certainly with uh, Mr. Montalongo, who was the, the Secretary of the Air Force for Financial Management at the time, thinking that was my end. Right. And, I, you know, I go to the go to the Pentagon and I'm really overwhelmed. I mean, it's it's where the where the big dogs go to use their powers of persuasion. And when I got the second star, they built I actually went to um, uh, Air Force Base in San Antonio um, to, the, to the Education Training Command. And I was the, uh, again, the assistant to the commander who was a four star um, for all the education and training for the Air National Guard mm-hmm. wide, all the Air National Guard. And oh, it was wonderful. It was a delightful job, especially after having been at the Pentagon where you were, you know, like people are staring you down at everything you do. I mean, I was a one star. I got coffee for everybody else. I mean, you know. <laughs> and um, so I got my second star and went to to Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio. And um, it, it was a base where they reconstituted people who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That was their next mission so that it was a, okay, restore yourself with your family. Yeah. Uh, you're still working. You're still having to do, but it's education training. It's not a, a fast yeah. uh, pace Thing. And, and every Friday we did team building by, oh, let's see, what would the Air Force do? Play golf. And so Randolph has a beautiful Air Force, uh, has a beautiful uh, golf course, and we played golf. So my husband would come down for the weekends with me, and uh, I spent a lot of time. But it was, again, it was just part-time. It was about three-quarter time. Had great quarters. I mean, the old, old, old barracks were just Gorgeous. I mean, hardwood, tile floors, all done Hispanic. It was beautiful. And then I got a call from the new director of the Air National Guard, <clears throat> who had given me my second star and sent me to San Antonio, which was Mecca. And he said, I need a favor. And I went, uh, yes, sir. What can I do for you, sir? Because he was a three-star. And he said, I need you to go back to the Pentagon. I went, Ay, ay, ay. I'm down here in heaven and you want me to go back to the pressure cooker. Well, yes, sir, I'd be happy to. What can I do for you? And he said, I need someone to go into the the chief of staff for manpower and personnel. People again. I did money. Now they want me to do people. We need mandates and and, uh, slots, authorizations for people in the Air National Guard. And the guy who's over it right now is an Oklahoman who loves you, but he doesn't like the Air Guard. So we need you to go and make him fall in love with the Air Guard. I failed that mission. But I did go, and I did get lots of mandates and things, and it was all good. And uh, General Roger Brady is my hero today. He went to um, uh, Yusefi in in England, in, uh, Germany and became the commander and got his fourth star. And he's a great Oklahoman, a, a wonderful leader. And uh, but his whole thing was he said, You guys in the Air Guard are on county option. Whatever you want to do, that's what you do. And I went, 
is there a problem with that, sir? <laughs> and the truth was, yes, we are all doing flying and fighting the same mission now. And it was true. From the time I joined the Air Guard, it really was, uh, I'm not going to say it was a boys club, but it was, it was a, a, they concentrated on their self and their mission. And it wasn't a combat mission. Once we got into combat, we became one force with the active duty the guard, the reserve. We were all one force. We had to fly and fight the same way. We had to have the same uh, goals and ideas, and we had to have the same behaviors. And that was a little difficult for some of my Air Guard brothers to think, I joined the Air Guard, not the Air Force. Uh, well, yeah. it's, it's the same thing now. So come on, suck it up and <laughs> let's go. But I loved it. But when uh, General Brady went to uh, USAFE, I went in and told the commander, because they were... There was a lot of, I'm not going to say hostility, there's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. there in that place. And and it's because that's where you make the plans that fly and fight in the defense of this nation. Not just Air Force, Army, Navy, Air, uh, Marines, um, and Coast Guard are in there. And so you, you have a higher level mission, and with that comes higher level responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I did what they were, what I was asked to do, and when General Brady left, I went, I don't want to break in another guy. Can I go home? Yeah. Because I was only working part-time. And by the way, that's the time that I was roommates with Congresswoman uh, Mary Fallon, mm-hmm. who later came back to run for governor, and that's how I became the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. So it's all kind of convoluted, but it's all connected. Mary Fallon is a dear, wonderful friend. And of course, again, it's different than when you go to work for them. Mm-hmm. We were roommates and we shared a, a hotel, a, a, an apartment in D.C. when she was a congresswoman. And that was a little stressful for the folks in the Pentagon that I was rooming with a congresswoman. And she would laugh and she'd say, well, that's okay, because all the congressmen go like, are you leaking secrets to the Air Force? <laughs> um, no, we were both working 14-hour days. So, no, we weren't leaking anything to anybody. We were lucky if we were in the apartment at the same time. But it was wonderful, and I, I loved the job that she offered me and uh, probably became the springboard for the rest of my life as I retired, was yeah. working as the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and I loved that. And, I, of course, when she asked me if I would like to do that, I went, um, no, I'm tired of those hairy-legged old boys. I am not interested in playing with them anymore. Yeah. And she said, they need you. Yeah. We don't do enough for veterans in Oklahoma. And so it was my job to go in and build new programs and make new inroads and loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, I, did, I had no staff. I had no budget. Uh, but they did pay me, and that was good. So yeah. they pay, I was the lowest paid secretary, though. That's what it had always been because it was a part-time job. Sure. And I made it a full-time job and loved it. Traveled all over the state, which drove the people who did my my payment vouchers for travel drove them crazy. I about wore a car out, but it, I was in, in a liaison to the five active duty bases in Oklahoma and the 359,000 veterans that are in Oklahoma and worked with the Guard and Reserve. So it was busy. I loved it. Yeah. And my husband had just passed away when I took the job. In fact, that's why Governor Fallon asked me to come work yeah. was my husband had passed away and she said, you need focus and you need purpose in your life. And I still say I have to have purpose in my life. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a full circle moment for you too, right? Sure. Yeah. 
yeah. it's really cool to have that position and, and be in a position, but also you, you can relate to all the vets out there because you know, you're, you're part of the team. <laughs> Absolutely. And many of them had worked for me in the yeah. past in one, <laughs> one place or another. And, yeah. and trust me, it, it didn't deter them from coming to ask for things. Yeah. But I told them that was great. You give me your wish list mm-hmm. because I'm your liaison to the legislature. I'm your liaison to the governor. I can carry those things. And, and I will tell you this, there is no more patriotic state in the United States than Oklahoma. And our legislature responds very well to her military installations and to her uh, veterans. And I, I, it was a wonderful job for me. Yeah. I didn't have any other concerns at that time. I mean, my kids were all grown. My husband had passed away. And so it took my focus. And she was, Governor Fallon was very right. Yeah. It was my focus on now, what is my legacy? What do I leave behind? And I, I will tell you, even after I retired and we moved on from that, it is still my focus. I still do a lot of veteran things. Um, but I enjoy it. And I still like to do educational things. I when I'm asked to speak. I always say, if I can do it with my mouth, honey, we're okay. If I have to do work, look out. There may be some problem with me accomplishing my task. So um, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And, and when I sit on boards, I try to remember that I'm representing a body of people that need a voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and looking over, obviously, your bio and, and everything you've done, you know, and you mentioned you know, when you had to, you know, you, you fired that chief, right? And you had to go up the level and go to the right person to actually get the clearance to do it. But you, I remember you saying that, you know, this is the new Air Force, right? This guy's made some, some bad comments and didn't, didn't really probably, you know, thought that he was, you know, doing things that everyone had done in the past, well, right? Well, I was so, the first woman commander. That's what They I was were not say. used to someone yeah. it, it being in those positions mm-hmm. That was not one of the good old boys. Yeah. So it took a while for it to sink in, but once it did. And now we have lots of women in leadership positions, not only in the Air Guard, but the Air Force is full of wonderful women. And, well, all the services are. I will tell you, the Navy stepped forward first. The Navy was very engaged in in uh, diversifying their, their workforce, and they gave women jobs on, on ships uh, and, and big jobs. We have women that command... Uh, uh, flat top aircraft carriers now, so mm-hmm. it, it's very exciting. It's a new, it's a new day in a new world. How little seventy five years ago, when President Truman signed the Inter Service Act, he had no concept of what was getting ready to happen. Now we're only about twenty two percent of the women are only about twenty two percent of the fighting force or, or the military forces. It varies from branch to branch, uh, but. You're, you know, a fifth of, or almost a fourth of the fighting force. And we, we stress that there are different positions that women really excel in. And those things that take um, uh, multitasking, thinking, and forcefulness do exceptionally well. Yeah. You mentioned earlier as well about Air War College. Tell me about that. What is that? Oh, you know, oh. you're talking about fighting, not just only leadership, but you're talking tactics as well. How, Absolutely. How different is that from just education leadership? Well, when you when you go into the Air Force, they assume, they demand mm. that in order to get promoted, you not only have uh, outside academic uh, education, but you also have to have 
area education has to continue. Remember, I told you in basic training, you learn the ranks and you learn the mission of the Air Force and all that. Well, that goes on. So first you go to squadron officer school. So I was a squadron officer. I went to school at, out at Tinker, and it was a class, and you learned about um, the history of the Air Force and uh, what you need to do as a new commander and what you have to do. You know. And so then you do a command and staff college when you're... Um, major going to lieutenant colonel and um, you learn more about the missions that the air force competes in and how they're in then you move to air war college in order to be qualified to make colonel well i didn't really think i had a chance at making colonel because i wasn't a flyer but i went to school anyway that was the secret that i told all the airmen that i worked with you've got to have your your college education, but you've also got to have your military education. Do the next level before you're ready to be promoted so that you're ready when they have someone to pick out. And it was that way when I uh, did command and staff college. I made lieutenant colonel at minimum time because I had all my ducks in a row. I had done all my professional military training. I had done all of my, my technical training. So, yeah, in Air War College, you're talking about upper-level management. You're talking about a lot of military history, which I was not good at. We, we formed a group. We did it um, um, by email. We, we, we took the courses. We studied them together. Each one would present, every night we had six or seven of us in the class. Each night we met, we would take a chapter, we would present that chapter. Of course, that was easy for me. That was right up my alley. So um, we, and then we would take the test, which was grueling, grueling, because there was so much material they would cover in there. And we not only covered in that, just the Air Force, but how the Air Force interacted with other branches of the service, mm -hmm. Navy and Army in particular. Uh, so, it, yeah, it was... Uh, I, I'd taken college courses that weren't nearly as tough as that. <laughs> and I, working on my master's. When I, now, when I went to work on my doctorate, that was a whole different ballgame. Uh, I did statistical analysis and said, that's enough for me, I'm done. <laughs> I was, it was not my forte. I don't need a doctor. I don't need a doctor's yeah. Well, and that was just the time I was going into working full-time at the yeah. at the Air Guard office. And I said, nah, I don't need that. I'm not going back to that. So it's not worth my time. Not, uh, not worth my grief. <laughs> and my husband at the time, Greg Aragon, who is a mathematical genius, he is, he is undoubtedly the smartest man I ever knew. I mean, he, he read voraciously. He remembered everything he read. And he would read my stuff for my... Uh, working on my doctorate, and he'd say, this is so easy. This is so, come on, you can do this. And I'm going like, but I can't, I don't memorize well. Right. I'm, a, I'm a big picture person. I'm a generalist, mm -hmm. literally a generalist. And so having to memorize uh, theorems and theories and which which program do I use for this? It's all done by computer. I don't need to know that. He goes like, you have to learn it. They told you you have to learn it. So he was right. And I didn't. So I quit my doctorate. Yeah. yeah. I had 10 hours and a dissertation to go. And now I would have to 
start all over again. So, and I'm too old for that. The brain won't hold. It's like a sieve now. It just kind of goes through. And I remember small, minute particles of what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. You mentioned technology there. Technology changes changed a lot. You know, over a your lot. career and the, and the things that you know, you got drones out there now, and all the other stuff that's going on. Like, you know, it it's incredible to to see the difference, and and you've seen a lot of it. I'm curious to know what like is that was there any big points along your career that you're like wow this was like this was a huge technology jump I mean to see what the planes are doing now is insane right oh oh yeah oh yeah I would have lots of problems because because you do grow into it it's like anything else in any educational career you go into you do it step by step you don't jump from light years to something else Um, I will never forget um, I was working at the Pentagon and they were sending me out to Luke Air Force Base to do something and they sent a couple of Air Guard Bubba's along with me and um, they were my escorts and we we're in a little King Air and we fly up to uh, Luke on ramp and we're they're parking us and here's this great big flashing sign welcome Major General Rita Aragon and they looked at me and they went they think you're somebody <laughs> and I said well to them I am to you I'm another Bubba uh, I'm a guard Babette and and I would do that with active duty forces I would say yeah. I'm a I'm a guard Bubba yeah. you know and and they would say you know you're the Babette and I would go yeah you're right I am yeah but it was, it is one of those things where you have to have a dual thinking mind. And yes, I had so many wonderful experiences and uh, that hopefully will come out in my book. We'll have a lot yeah. of the different experiences um, and, and people that I met and yeah. places that I got to go. I got to travel all over the world. I got to do uh, oh, one of my favorite stories to tell on my husband is charm school. When you become a general officer, they send you to charm school and it's to learn how to eat correctly in a big group environment. I mean, they set places with eight utensils on either side and three plates and it was it would boggle the mind um but my husband was going to be the only man for the spouses the spouses are required to go with you because they have to know how to entertain and welcome distinguished visitors too usually they call it dining with diplomats and so uh, you know, my husband said, I'll go, but I'm not folding any damn napkins. And I go like, well, I won't ask you to fold napkins, but, you know, just kind of get a lay of the land. What's going to, he's going like, I, 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 this is going to be awful. I'm just, and after the first day, when, when they split us up and the spouses went, all the wives and Greg went one way and I was with the guys, which I was used to being in a, sure. in a male dominated environment. And so that night I said, well, you know, was it just awful? Did you have a terrible... He, I, no, I have to be there early tomorrow. The girls are counting on me. And I went, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> and he loved it and became, a, a, you know, kind of a wild man after that. Um, but he... it, The military is a family organization. Not only are you family with the Air Force or with the Navy or with the Army your family becomes part of it too. And they say, you know, we recruit an airman and we get a whole family. And that is true. And and the family has obligations and because on active duty they transfer you and move you around so much that it, it does it does take in the whole family. Yeah. And and as commander of the Oklahoma Air Guard, it was my job to make sure we took care of families and all of those who served. And uh, fortunately 
we didn't lose anyone under my command, but we did lose some Army folks. And it was my job to meet with the women. Because I'm a woman, it was my job. They didn't have a female general uh, in, the, in the Army Guard. So they asked me to meet with the spouses and talk with them and try to help allay some of their anxieties and move forward. And, and uh, I, I treasure that. I treasure that they asked me to do that. It was a, a great experience. A, a Senator Inhofe uh, had me come to Tulsa, and they provided a dinner in a home. And we all sat down and talked about stuff. And I told them at that point I had lost my husband. And I said, you know, I've lost my husband. And he was a brilliant man, and he had brain cancer. And he turned into a little child again. I said, you all, most of you were newly married. You didn't have long hair. There were a couple of them that were there. They'd been married 12 or 13 years. And I said, I don't know which is worse. You haven't built those memories with someone, and so you feel that negative loss. I, I, I never got to do that. For those of us who had time with our spouse and you lose them, and particularly if they are degraded, you go... I had all these great, wonderful memories, and now that is lost. And so, um, yeah, it it allowed me, it gave me good therapy talking to them, but it gave them an opportunity to talk to someone that they felt like had shared the same kinds of experiences that they had. Yeah. So the book, which you just mentioned, it's coming out. Um, it's not finished yet. Bob it is, is not finished yet. Bob, is, you know, Bob is working on it. <laughs> I'm sure he's working on others as well, but he's working on it. Um is there things in the book that do, like because you you know you you've served it in such a high role? Do you have to send the book off to the military to get it checked before? No, I do not, okay. and I will not. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there's so many things out. No, there. you're right. Well, I don't I don't reveal secrets. Yeah. I will never reveal secrets. I still I still have that oath. Yes. To guard and protect mm-hmm. the uh, uh, serve the military. Yeah. Operations. Although I will tell you, you know, with the missions changing, I probably wouldn't know anything right. to tell anybody anyway. Uh, but no, the, the, I don't have to get it yeah. cleared. I censor myself. Yeah, because the other, I mean, the other big topic at the moment, and I'm sure it makes you laugh at sometimes, is just you know this UA, you know, UAPs, UFO, alien, oh. all this stuff that's in the media, right? And oh, yeah. all the conspiracy and social media just amplifies it by a million. I don't participate in social media for that reason. For that reason, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah. No, um, when we first started flying uh, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, as you know, the or you may not know, the the headquarters for that is at Luke Air Force Base in in uh, in, New Mex- in in Las Vegas, and I got to go out and see the situation, and the, and the guys are real pilots. They don't. They didn't like being the joystick driver and and having to watch everything through a screen. Although it was very, it was like being in a flight simulator, um, maybe a little more intense. Um, but now they fight for those positions because that is the future of the Air Force, and and Navy. Navy has a lot of unmanned air, as does the Army, because they all realize that's where it's going. That way, we're not putting human beings in 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 harm's way. We're flying those vehicles that can do that and it's wonderful missions and no I don't know anything about that really I don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well and you, you referenced it earlier like the you know the new Maverick movie like there's a scene in it right where he's just like you know you're 
Top Gun is about to be extinguished because we don't need you anymore. That's where the future's going, you know. That's and that right. penny just turns to the camera. He's like, "Not yet." You know? he's just like, <laughs> yes, that's right. What that's a right. good movie. Not yet. Yeah. Well, because it depends on who who right. your enemy is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, hundred percent. And and uh, and the last two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. And there are still operations going on around yeah. the world that we don't hear about and talk about a lot. And I don't know anything about them, but I do know they exist. Well, it's and also for the safety of the nation. That's right? exactly right. You know, people don't realize that. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, when I talk about being in the military, the United States military is in 88 nations of the world, or at least it was when I left. Maybe more than that now. Uh, we have a presence there. We are a peacekeeping presence. And we ha you have to be reminded of that constantly, that our job is to keep the peace. It's not to be an aggressor. The United States has not taken any land or any items of value from any of the wars that we've been in since World War II. And we didn't take any land there, but the guys took some things. Um, but we don't do that. We don't get in wars to acquire new land. We get in wars to defend other people. And I will tell you, I have a lot of people who constantly say, well, uh, why were we in Iraq and Afghanistan? Why were we in uh, uh, Vietnam? We are there to preserve the peace in our country. And a lot of people forget that when they're talking about, well, we have to ramp up the military, well, we have to engage and stay current on the cutting edge. And that's because other countries are. Mm -hmm. And we have to be prepared, and we have to. We have. We, we were talking about this earlier. I am. I am a. I am to be prepared all the time. I'm not a prepper, but I am prepared all the time for whatever future yeah. dealings that we have. And hopefully, most Americans think that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that we have to anticipate what is coming our way. And so I would say I'm an anticipator as opposed to a prepper. But I know there are a lot of people who are very have a lie, high level of anxiety about even inside our own nation, not to mention outside our nation. Mm -hmm. We don't need a civil war. Yeah. No, but I it could agree. happen. The sad reality is it could happen, right? Yeah. And with social media and all the other stuff that's going on, it's a lot easier than it was 20 years ago. You're absolutely right? correct. Um, finishing up, because we are in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame today, and you're inducted in 2016. Um, Tell me a little bit about that moment. Who called you? Did Shannon give you a phone call and say you're about to be inducted? How, how was that for you? Uh, no, actually, uh, oh, forgot his name. He was the chair at the okay. time. And he called and said, Rita, because I know him, and he said, uh, you're going to be inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. And I went, no, I'm already in the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame. And he said, no, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. And I went, Holy cow. I mean, it was not something I ever anticipated. I was very excited. I am so honored. I can't take. In fact, when people tell me what is the highest award I've ever been given, that's what I say. I say, I am in my state's Hall of Fame. And that makes me very, very proud. Yeah. So, yeah, it was exciting. And, and the night that we had, and of course, people don't understand the work that goes into doing uh -huh. the induction ceremony and all the preparation you do to be ready to, to go into it is enormous. Um, people in, that are in um, the information industry comprehend it, but it was something I was not ready for. And it was an opportunity for me to thank the people who helped me get there. And it was not about 
my accomplishment, but their accomplishment because they gave me the, the platform to do what I needed to do and to have my picture hanging in the Hall of Fame. I have people all the time who take picture with it and put it on Facebook and or send it to me and say, hey, I saw you today. That's, that is, I, in fact, I have goosebumps right now. It is very exciting to me. And, and I am thrilled with that honor. And you're very involved still. You know, you, you come to the lunches, the one they announce every year, and also you go to the ceremony when you can. And, you know, it's it, I'm sure it's fun just to be around fellow oh, yeah. Oklahoma Hall of Famers wearing your medallion that day. They're, they're, they're super people. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a hairy-legged girl from Dale, <laughs> Oklahoma. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, I like, also like do. I also do come up and do things with students. Mm -hmm. They ask me to come and read to them. I can still read elementary books, you know. But it, it, it it's a lot of fun to stay in engaged and yeah. they put a little um, uh, station up for me put my flight suit in it and those mm -hmm. kinds of things that the kids could walk through and see and they went ooh wow <laughs> when was the last time you put the flight suit on oh well it's been a while okay. when people ask me if I'm going to wear my uniform I go like I wish I could <laughs> but no but yeah I'm still authorized to wear it I can do it yeah. I, but I can't do it <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look forward to the book. Uh, do we know like a rough date when the book is coming out? No. Uh, okay. Bob Burke has said we will do the final put together in the spring. Okay. Of 2000. Next year. Whatever it yeah. is, 24. 24 yeah. um, and then I don't know how long it actually takes for the printing and the publication and that kind of thing. So I would say hopefully by next summer of right. 2024. Okay. Looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for sharing so many great stories. Um, for everyone listening, I will put the link to Major General's bio in the description. You can go and read some more. And then whenever that book does come out, we'll push it as well. So thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. And for everyone thank listening. Thank you. Yeah. For everyone listening, we'll catch you next episode. Thank you. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at OklahomaHOF. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever. I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. This episode is brought to you by Hope is Alive. Hope is Alive exists to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. Join us on August 11th at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for a celebration of hope featuring guest speaker Tim Tebow and musical artist Ben Fuller. Find out more and get your tickets at hia10.com. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. 
At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Weha in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.